Welcome to Open Mind UFO Radio. I am your host, Alejandro Rojas, and I'm here with Martin Reptilian Willis. Reptilian, the truth's out. Mm-hmm. Finally. Wow. Have you ever been accused of being reptilian? No, but I've had reptiles before. Oh, you have? Yeah, a uh, tortoise. I had a tortoise. That's about as close as I can think that I got maybe I act kind of like a tortoise sometimes in the morning yeah yeah I could see that that fits your personality that's your spirit animal that's right yeah so I haven't I've never been uh accused of it but I've been accused of being a victim of it because um oh this is actually funny have you heard this story I don't know if you and I have talked about this but um at the citizen hearing, uh, Antonio Junez, who I used to work with, the listeners, well, I haven't talked about this in a while, so newer listeners probably might not have heard this story. So Antonio was in one of the videos making a weird face. And so <laughs> some dude made a video and said, look, you know, there are a bunch of reptilians here. And he was sitting next to Stephen Greer. And he's like, look, this guy Antonio is a reptilian. And it got really big, you know, and we were laughing about it. Antonio was kind of mad about it, actually. But this is what's funny, and hopefully he doesn't mind if I share this. He's kind of MIA, so I guess that's what he gets. But uh, he was making funny faces because what Stephen Greer was saying was absolutely ridiculous, he felt. And he and I have very similar perspectives. So he was getting things wrong, some of the facts wrong and everything. So Antonio was feeling really uncomfortable because what Greer was saying, and he was sitting right next to him so he was kind of like trying not to roll his eyes but he was like fidgeting and making funny faces and and that's why he was making funny faces well this video Uh, got big that's a riot and and then the guy said oh look at these two women behind him and uh there are these these two ladies both of whom i know um and one of whom at the time i was very good friends with victoria and the other one was Karen, who I'm now been dating for many, many years, and um, you know, uh, we're we're soulmates. So the other was my soulmate. But the guy said, "Look at these two women in the background," and they were actually volunteers and helping and running the the citizen hearing. And he said, "These two women are reptilians too." <laughs> so uh, we made fun of the whole thing, and Jason and Maureen uh, were. You know, they used to work at Open Minds and they were on a video where they made fun of the whole thing. And the guy got really mad and accused Jason and Maureen of being reptilians. So it was kind of funny. So I was joking around how I didn't even know any of this and this is so scary. I'm working with reptilians, but if they are, they seem kind of nice. And uh, <laughs> Alfred Weber 
took that and put it in oh, a story, no. like taking it serious as if I was really terrified. And that was kind of the headline of something around oh. Alejandro being terrified that he's now working. He found out he's working with reptilian. So really oh, funny. I wasn't accused riot. of being a reptilian, though. So I think I should take that as a compliment because it didn't seem like this person felt that was a good thing. Don't you have to do like some type of shape shifting or something to be or certified reptilian? I don't know. I don't know what the certification is. I don't follow David Icke close enough. I think that that <laughs> whole stuff is just kind of kind of silly. But um, personally, um, no offense to anybody who's really into it. But uh, so I'm not. I used to be more familiar with his work, but I haven't really followed it, and I can't remember what the, the requirements. I think you just have to have some sort of power, like if you're uh, oh. like if you're a politician. Boom, automatically. So I think it has to do more with like the position you hold in, in life. Now, on a serious side, was this ever something that was like part of uh, popular culture in some type, some type of way in a, in a movie or, or comic book or something like that? I mean, where did all this come from? Do you have any, any well, ideas was, on that? What was that movie? They Live, I think the movie was called. I can't remember. With Roddy Roddy Piper, The Wrestler. Remember, he oh. put on his cool sunglasses and he could see who was reptilians and not. <laughs> I haven't seen that, no. And then there was no. the miniseries V, which they redid oh, yeah. a few years ago. But back in like the, the 80s, you know, the, the these aliens came and they looked like us, but it turned out they're a reptilian. Um, but uh, yeah, so I don't know how far that whole idea goes back. Yeah. Wow. I'm going to have to get me a pair of those glasses. Mm-hmm. Especially when I go to the UFO Congress this February. Yeah, for sure. So yeah. I'm I'm gathering though that you're you're denying that you are not a reptilian. Well, as far as I know, I I don't have uh, any of the reptilian uh, traits that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. But uh, so I'm curious why why you called me that. Well, it was I think a subconscious thing because I was thinking about aliens because I was writing something. Um, but uh, and and I was looking at our website with the whole uh, autopsy, alien autopsy thing. I think that was part of it. But now that I think about it, it was kind of good because it it let me flush out and talk about this with you. And later I'll be able to analyze that and maybe put this through some sort of machine that will analyze your voice and be able to determine whether or not you're telling the truth and whether you are a reptilian or not. Uh, Are you going to get uh, Ben Hansen involved in this? Maybe. Maybe. The good thing for you is that I uh, don't believe in discriminating against, you know, people for their race or or creed or anything. So even if I do find out you are a reptilian, I'll still give you a shot. You know, I won't won't discriminate against you. That's kind of you, Mm -hmm. really. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We need that. Yeah. I think that's important. Yeah. So we should get on with the business of which um, people have paid big money to hear us uh, do. True. Actually, it's free. But um, UFO News, do you have – or actually, let me talk about my guest because this is exciting. Oh, good. So my guest is Jeremy Corbell. And ah. why is that so exciting? I've had him on before. I think I was one of the first, if not the first to have him on, and the first to have him come speak at our conference and helped him become – uh, big because he's got cool, cool stuff. Because he's got more cool stuff coming out. That's why. He, uh, in fact, 
tomorrow he his video is going to be his latest movie is going to be available and uh, it's going to be on iTunes and uh so I'm just super excited about it. I'm a huge fan of his work and he's done work that is not UFO related and it's just we talk about this in an interview. It's very intimate. He gets to know the people that are his subjects, and I think it allows then you, the viewer, to get to know them at a level that uh, you know no other documentary really explores, uh, at least as far as in this field. And even for outside of this field, it, it's very uh, – to me, it really draws you in. I really like it. Um, it's a bit enigmatic, but uh, so is life. Um, and so are we all as people. But uh, so I'm really excited about this. So Jeremy's, uh, if you're listening to the podcast and it's Tuesday and his video is being launched then today on iTunes. But um, uh, actually, everybody's listening because even if you're listening on KGRA, it's the middle of the night. So it's probably already Tuesday. But. Uh, he's also got some other stuff in the works that he hasn't shared before that we talk about and uh, some other exciting things that, uh, you know, some news that he was willing to share with uh, our listeners for the first time. So really exciting stuff. I, pe- I think people are really going to enjoy this conversation. Wow. Uh, just last night, I communicated with him. That is ironic. Whoa. Yeah. And I didn't know about his his uh, film coming out. Um, oh, you Tuesday. didn't. Nope. I just uh, I was going through some past guests that I thought were interesting, and I reached out to him to see if he could come on my show this week. So I'm glad he couldn't because that would be like a double header. So uh, he's going to be on my show. Well, in, now you uh, know why he November couldn't break because yeah. he's so busy with the launch of this, and he's got a that's ton right. of stuff scheduled. So that's too bad because if yeah. he would have known earlier, I think he would have loved to have gone on because uh, he's going to be. That's what he's doing right now. He's promoting. His film, like big time, so uh, really cool. So we'll be talking I, about that. And this is—I think he's going to be in L.A. in a couple of days, I believe, or even tomorrow. Yeah, they're going to be doing a screening in L.A. of his movie uh, for the uh. press and stuff. So cool stuff. Uh huh. Wow. So that's the yep. guest today. Uh, so now we can move on to the news. What you got, buddy? Well, I'm going to talk a little more. We've talked about this uh, Deputy Sheriff's uh, Roswell sighting in the past. And uh, so uh, Phil Mantle has written recently, and this has to do, again, with Irina Scott, who um, wrote uh, the book UFOs Today, 70 Years of Lies, Misinformation, and Government Cover-Ups. We both have had Irina Scott on the show, interesting uh, woman with a, an amazing background, well, um, this witness, a, a deputy, uh, Forgus, thought he had witnessed the 1947 crash, as we had talked about before. And uh, he was actually en route uh, to pick up uh, uh, through to Roswell, actually, to pick up a prisoner um, when he supposedly was uh, redirected after he heard over the radio there was a, a crash on certain roads to try to find this crash. Um, so the bottom line is, um, he is, uh, he was a straight shooter. Both his uncle, uh, I'm sorry, both his nephew, that is, and his son both said he was a no nonsense type of guy. Now I'm curious because, um, in this article that Phil, Philip Mantle wrote, he's saying there's a 16 minute, uh, video clip of an interview of him, uh, Charles Fogus, 
talking about that crash. And I'm just wondering if that's available somewhere. I don't know if you know anything about that. I think um, the original story, which was done by a UK paper, I think to Daily Express, um, I, th- I I think we have the link in one of the – well, no, we don't have the link to that story because Phil wrote these himself on our website. But uh, I'll look that up. But I think in the original Daily Express story they had uh, that video. Someone else has asked me about that too. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, um, so anyway – you know, basically the bottom line is there's still um, some discrepancies, but uh, Phil was trying to um, straighten most of that out. He he did say, you know, he also did admit that there were discrepancies in the testimony on the tape um, as far as what supposedly happened at Roswell. But, uh, you know, he does mention that a Roswell uh, investigator called uh Deputy Fogus is as a lie of uh, that this happened, but um, but he most likely saw something happen, uh, according to his his son, who believes in his story and uh, his nephew. Yeah, so I think you know Philip was really excited about this news, and he wrote the story, which is great, and of course we are super super grateful for it, but. Um, it doesn't really change anything, and, and the problem is is the, the discrepancies are, are so huge. I mean, he didn't become a deputy. I think Chase Kletsky, who we've both uh, had on the show, yeah. you just had her recently, she helped right. investigate this and, and her team, and, you know, they discovered he wasn't a deputy until 1953, which is the earliest this event could have taken place. And he, uh, Philip, in this story, asked his son about it. And his son said, well, I still think it happened in 1947, like my dad said. But, I mean, it couldn't have. And so that's a major problem. And even if it did, he said it was right off the road. And this, the crash site is not right off the road. Off um, any road. Not off yeah, any road. Yeah, it's not off any road. I mean, the original site where Mac Brazel saw it, I've been to, and it's in the middle of nowhere. It's certainly not right off of any road. And um, it, it, it takes a while to get there. You've got to drive through, um, you know, dirt roads and over hills, and you're really off-roading it there for a while. So, yeah, so the discrepancies are so huge that I, I it just does not equal this guy – uh, n- did not see the Roswell crash, or and if he saw a crash, here's another thing from the story uh, that Philip just wrote too, is that this guy said when he left the scene, he still did not know what had crashed or even if it was something abnormal. Mm-hmm. So he left the scene thinking, well, maybe that was a plane crash and those were dead people. Um, and if that's the case... You know, there's just so many problems. If that's the case, and then later when he saw a TV show on Roswell or something, he thought, oh, that must have been what I've seen, then it just, too many problems. Memory doesn't hold up for that long. So um, he might have been a, a super honest guy, and it could be an honest mistake, which I think happens a lot. Yeah, and some, when something jogged his memory of the TV show, you know, maybe – well, the one thing he does say that he observed the recovery of a hundred foot diameter round craft and strange looking dead bodies, that would be kind of hard to jumble around in your memory uh, to come up with that, you know. So, 
Oh, uh, yeah, it is. There's there is some discrepancies for sure. Yeah, I think um, what would need what would be a good question to ask the son is what did he originally describe to you? Um, did this idea of it being round come up later after he saw the show, or uh, you know, was this something he had originally described the first time he told his son about it? So, mm, right. But, yeah, you know, the other hard part is I, I know, and I say this with, I really like Irina and Philip. Philip is great. I mean, this whole alien autopsy thing, we, he posted a story just the other day on his work on that, and it is the definitive, you know, piece, I think, on how the yes. whole Roswell autopsy came about and how it was hoaxed and faked, and he's got all the details, so if people are interested really check that story out on our website. Uh, it's great. But I think this, uh, they were really excited to have, I think, their own witness. But there are actually a lot of witnesses out there and a lot of better witnesses. And um, Roswell's such a weird mm-hmm. situation. And I would recommend, I'm reading this now, and, and we I talked to Kevin Randall, had him on the show not too long ago to talk about it. But his book, Roswell for the 21st Century, a yeah. great book. I mean, you have to already know quite a bit about the Roswell case before you even crack open this book. So it's not for the novice, for better or mm-hmm. worse. But uh, if you are familiar with the case, you'll find this book fascinating because it does. it's very honest about who said what, when, and if their stories changed. Some people's stories changed quite a bit, uh, just demonstrating how memory is just a fallible thing. Do you think people's stories change because they are paying attention to what other people are saying? Largely. I think there's a whole bunch of different things that happen. I think that happens. um, And, you know, there's tons of studies that show once you hear someone else's account of something that you witnessed, your memory changes. Um, Hmm. So there's a bunch of things. Memory's changing. There can be a lot of different things that can change one's memory. And once some sort of outside information contaminates a memory, uh, Mm -hmm. that memory can be damaged forever. So, yeah, that's why it's so important to write down what happens right when something happens. For instance, the, the guy who took the most famous photo of, you know, Marcel and, and General Ramey with the debris. His oh, yeah. story changed multiple times. At first he said he took two fr- pictures. Then he said four pictures. Because at first he said only Ramey and, and his, like, uh, Colonel Dubois was there. And then and he said Marcel wasn't there. Then he changed the story. Oh, Marcel was there. Then the weather guy was there. Then the weather was, guy wasn't there. His memory kept changing. And uh, it wasn't until, you know, Kevin looked at the physical evidence, which was that six of the pictures, the same film was used. So he definitely took those six pictures. And they were owned by the newspaper that he worked for, um, which then uh, their archives are at the University of Texas. And so that's why they have these pictures. Uh, But yeah, you have to follow the physical evidence because unfortunately memory is just so unreliable. You know, I've actually realized when this was fairly recently because we've been talking about this a little bit about the memory thing. And that I like combine two different events has nothing to do with you. Really? But in my in my personal life, it was like I was confused about something that happened. 
and realize that I combined two different separate situations. So, and I think that, I think that can happen, you know, I mean, it happened with me. So, you know, I think that can happen with, with anyone. So this could be the case of the sheriff. He might be sort of combining two different things that happened or, or, or just, it sounds like he may have combined with what he was watching on TV with what he saw and just, you know, and, and on an honest mistake, you know, mm-hmm. not something, um, not something that he was just trying to do. Yeah. Yep. It's interesting how that happens. Um, mm-hmm. yep. So unfortunate, but that's the way it goes. So yeah, yeah, the other thing we mentioned was the definitive thing around the Roswell autopsy that Philip Mantle wrote, so people can check that out. That's really cool, too. Um, some of the interesting parts, this is kind of the crux of it. I don't know if you were able to take a look at it, but this Malaris guy, mm. so he talks about Santilli. He's a trickster. He's the one who keeps faking stuff, and even recently, you know, we put in a story how he tried to fake out this UK media and say, oh, look, here's a piece of the real film. And it was quickly discovered by one of our readers and confirmed by the Daily Express that that was not the case. But uh, so this guy's tricky. He went to Malaris in the first place and said, oh, look, I have this real film from 1947 of an alien abduction. He showed it to Malaris and Malaris said, this isn't film. This is video. And he says Santilli uh, was embarrassed because he was busted. Uh, uh, and he uh-huh. was like, oh, okay, yeah, it's video. How did you know? And, you know, so they talked about it. And so they, he said, okay. Uh, and he left. And he was embarrassed because he was – so Malaris um, said, got in touch with his friend John Humphreys, a special effects guy or artist, and said, hey – you know, the Santilli guy tried to fake me out, but we should really do this. We should really make a film that looks like it's 1947, um, see if we can make it look real and make a real abduction film. And so he said, okay. And uh, so they decided to do this because they were like, you know, it would be fun to try to really. And they decided they would do a documentary about how they did it, about how it was real and how they found this film from 1947. And then they do a second documentary saying, huh, we're just kidding. And here's how we faked it. Um, So they went to Santilli and they said, hey, you know, we like your your idea of making this hoax video and we would like to do it, uh, but make it look really like film and do a better job. And he said, okay. (laughs) So he even shows the drawings. The idea of how the alien looks is completely out of Malaris's and John Humphrey's imagination. Yeah. I love those drawings. Yeah. It was not based on any original film at all. The original film, um, as far as anybody can tell, did not exist. And mm-hmm. so Santilli's story of that the film was based off of that is completely false. And they can demonstrate that. You can see those drawings where they're coming up with the alien and what it would look like. So really interesting story. But he's got the whole timeline and everything that happened there uh, on the story. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I remember I was not really that interested in UFOs or anything at the time when this came out and it was on like, I forgot what new, it was on a regular news channel. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching. Oh, saying, it was oh, all over. God. Yeah. Like thinking, wow. And so 
And uh, so it really happened. You know, I mean, I thought it was a, a genuine thing. But the funny thing is, is, you know, the next I just went about my day like everything's OK, even mm-hmm. though I had that knowledge. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You weird kid. So, well, you're a reptilian, yeah. so you know what was going on. Yeah, I knew what was happening. Yeah. Just a couple other stories I wanted to talk to people about. Yeah, maybe next time we could talk about it. But yeah, there's a video of a UFO over Yellowstone. I don't know. It's okay, I guess. But uh, there's also Elon Musk talking about a singularity and kind of this matrix idea of how aliens have us in a matrix. I don't know how serious he is, but he was mm. talking about that recently. And then the alien mega structure. We haven't talked about that in a while. But there's another theory about what that 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 tabby star that is dimming and pulsing mm-hmm. at irregular uh, patterns, which some people have thought maybe it's an alien spacecraft or city or mega structure that's blocking their sun. There's more theories about what that might be as well. Who is coming up with these theories? Is it is it a, a science-based theory? Oh, yeah. These are scientists. That's good to hear. All right. Well, thank you very much. You have a good week. Same to you, buddy. After this break, we'll talk to Jeremy Corbell. Welcome back. You're listening to Open Mind UFO Radio. I am happy to welcome back to the show the one and the only, the Globetrotter, Jeremy Corbell. Hello. Hi, Alejandro. Thank you so much for having me on again. Yeah, thanks for being on again. It's exciting. You got a lot of cool stuff going on right now. It's a wild world out there. So the first thing I want to say is that, uh, talk about is, because this is such a huge coincidence, uh, you have been globetrotting. You've been, like, I guess in Europe lately. And I think the first thing I saw was you took this picture inside of a ruin bar. And I was like, oh my gosh, I was hanging out, like, in that exact room. And, and for people who don't know, you know, in Budapest, they have these bars that are essentially buildings that are just, like, kind of uh, all run down. They look like ruins. And so they built all these bars with tons of different rooms in them. And what's funny is a picture you took is the exact picture we ended up hanging out or a place we hung out in. That's amazing. Yeah, it's what an art installation that is. It is just this immediate clash, you know, within your eyes of these really cool little environments as you walk through this maze of different bars and people. It was something spectacular. When I saw your text that you had just been there, I thought that was so cool. I I started my trip uh, all around Europe basically to promote Patient 17, but the, the main thing that happened was I got offered a premiere at the National Museum of Denmark and also wow. to give a yeah to give a 2 hour talk for patient 17 so that was just such a spectacular opportunity it was so beautiful and the people there that hosted me Exopolitics Denmark they were just amazing the guy Freddie was the the main guy just what a cool experience. My mom came with me all through Europe as I did this tour. Oh, cool. So they arranged for you to do these talks around um, Denmark, I guess, then? No, the, they arranged for the, the premiere, the European premiere of my film, Patient 17, 
at the National Museum in Denmark and then to have me talk. And then it just so happened it was an opportunity to travel with my mom just all around Europe. And we got city to city and met up with other people interested in UFOs. And people would reach out as I entered a country and would take me around. There's a friend of mine in Amsterdam named Alex. And we've only speaking, sorry, we've only spoke about UFOs (laughs) via you know, online and Skype, and we got to meet in person, and he took us all around. Mm-hmm. So what were some of the places you got to go to? Oh, my gosh. So it was Denmark, and then went to Germany, Berlin, drove all the way down Berlin through uh, Bamberg, which is this ancient city town in Germany, and then we actually landed in Oktoberfest in Munich, which was amazing, then over to Amsterdam, and from Amsterdam, I think we went to Budapest, Vienna, it was wild. Awesome. That sounds super cool. And I want to get back to patient 17 because this is the important stuff going on right now. But I did want to ask you about something else. And I did, I think I forgot to tell you a little bit of business before we started rolling, but that's okay. We've got about 20 minutes and then we'll take a short break and come back for about another 20 but um, my question is this. You've been doing some stuff with the Skinwalker Ranch. So how did that start up and, and what's involved with this project? Right. Yeah, I think it's uh, you know no secret at this point that George Knapp has been an incredible mentor to me over the years to help facilitate as I go into these investigations. And obviously, he and Colin Kelleher wrote the book on Skinwalker Ranch, Hunt for the Skinwalker. So we started talking over all these years, and as you probably are aware, there was a change of ownership in the ranch, and Bigelow no longer owns the ranch. This really opened opportunities for these silence agreements to be breached. And so we're able now to go through all this archive of footage and everything for, you know, that George has collected and, you know, the other scientists working there for years, And some of it, over time, we're able to put out. So we created, specifically for this project, the website huntthskinwalker.com. And this is like the Twilight Zone and Twin Peaks with a clockwork orange (laughs) twist, man. It is wild. And so I've been able to have access and go not only to the ranch, but also to the adjacent areas and interview and speak and film with witnesses. And we've been doing this quietly for a long time now. We're just able to start publishing this information and data. And so that's what you're seeing through huntthskinwalker.com. And there will be lots coming out, but at a nice, steady pace. Even when you go to the splash screen of the website, you see actual video footage from a mutilation that happened on the ranch. This is footage that has never been made public before. So there's an archive of information check it out. And it really, it started because of the mentorship that I had with and have with with George Knapp. And we are so excited to get this out there to people. Well, this is exciting. This is super cool. And I I think a lot of people are going to be really excited about this because there have been some sort of investigations that have happened, but nothing like it's difficult for people from the outside to be able to come and then hang out in the area and and experience something uh, or record that. But you're having stuff that has never been seen before that comes from the ranch itself, right? I would say... Not even that, but additionally, this is the first time in history that the tribal members 
the elders have allowed wow. for a journalist to actually film. I got to sleep in the high traffic area of the foot of the skinwalker. You are not allowed to sleep out there. You're not allowed to camp out there. And I was given, uh, you know, kind of an escort, a guy who was really great and really helped us navigate. And he's a tribal member as well. And he's he was law enforcement. And we could go anywhere, do anything, film anything and take it off the sovereign nation. And that's the first time in history. Other people have gone up and taken little snippets. We had official authorization. So I have to thank deeply the tribal members of, of the Ute Nation because they allowed this to happen. And I hope we'll continue to allow this to happen. We have incredible uh, moments and interviews. And, and not only that. But the archive of information that has not allowed to be public before, if you read through the articles, it says, contributor, I don't name people, but trust me, the people contributing to this site are well informed over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing yeah, uh, many people that were involved with, uh, with Bigelow's uh, group that investigated the National Institute of Discovery Scientists. Yeah, this website is very well informed. So continue to watch it and read the articles and just know that it's not something we're pulling out of the air. This is from studies done in the area. And I have to say, I'm obligated to say, you may not go to Skinwalker Ranch unless you have invitation. It is not only a sovereign nation, but additionally, it is private property. And to harass any of the neighbors and to go up there, you're going to be on the wrong end of a shotgun if you do that. They take their sovereignty very seriously. And even with the proper paperwork, we were questioned by the tribal uh, police and law enforcement. And that was, a, that was personally the most wild experience I had hmm. while going there and doing investigations was the warning I got from one of the tribal officers. So anyway, don't go there. <laughs> right, right. It's funny. We, there was some guy that went there and sent us a video, a little bit of video of him being followed by a truck because essentially uh, he was on private property and he got ran off the land and he thought this was mysterious. And it's like, no, I mean, that's a You were ran off the land by this guy who owns it. That's not mysterious at all. And you could get in line to, and you should get in trouble for that. You can't go out of private property. It is, yeah, it is such an invasion of privacy. I live very remotely and rurally, and it is a major thing to step on or near somebody's property line, and that's their livelihood and where they live and everybody that lives around the ranch. And remember, it's not just the ranch. The ranch is scientifically the most studied hot spot for activity of what we call the phenomena anywhere for anywhere in the world at any time but the entire uinta basin has a rich history going back hundreds if not thousands of years with this type of phenomena so you don't need to go to the gates of the ranch and be that idiot tourist messing with people's private property you can just go to fort duchene and that area has always been a hub a hot spot both from a military side, as well as from totally undescribable events that are crazier than science fiction or any horror movie you've ever watched. Mm -hmm. And anybody who's read the book knows that. So Absolutely. And they should read the book and get caught up because what's coming next, they're, they're going to need to have that back information prior. So with uh, as far as social media goes, they can follow you to get updates on on all of this as well, right? Everything 
related to my work is easy to find at extraordinarybeliefs.com. All my social media outlets, it'll even direct you over to huntthskinwalker.com. So yes, just go to extraordinarybeliefs.com and everything is can be followed from there. Mm-hmm. And then on that video, so this is probably, I'm guessing this is a video of the aftermath of, of when they came across this uh, mutilated animal. Yes, this video is right when they got the call, and I think it was some ridiculously short amount of time, maybe an hour it took to fly directly there, get on the ground. This mutilation happened within a 20-minute span, I believe, from walking away and tagging this baby calf. And then, you know, Nids was on the ground doing tests, and this cattle, it was completely drained of blood, not even a footprint, a drop of blood all around it. It was pounds and pounds of meat stripped from it. One of the most fascinating mutilation cases ever recorded. And we have video right after by a scientific team deployed instantaneously to be there. Just astounding. And that's just the splash page. There's so much more inside the website itself. Mm Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. All right. So moving on to Patient 17. So this is an exciting project. Now, Patient 17, there was a short that you showed at the UFO Congress. So we all got a little bit of an insight there. But you have a new piece that is coming out, well, for the podcasters who are listening to this on Tuesday, coming out today. Yeah, well, you can actually uh, buy it now today on Mm. iTunes. It will be on almost every pay-per-view platform in existence. So October 10th, 2017, look on iTunes or any pay-per-view platform for Patient 17. It is, in fact, my first feature-length film. And in fact, it is my only and first mass-distributed film by The Orchard, which is a great uh, distribution company. And there's more to tell, but I have to hold off on it. But this is going to be accessible to everybody on this earth. So watch the film. But first, maybe we should talk about it so people know what they're getting into. Oh, yeah, definitely. We'll get into detail on that, which uh, I guess, how did it start? I, I, did it start with meeting Roger Lear and, and working with him? Because he plays a, a big part in uh, this this documentary. And uh, unfortunately, I think people who know his work, he's a podiatrist who you know, worked with uh, alleged alien implants. He thought... He didn't think much about the whole thing until he worked with it at first, and um, he has since passed away. Yes, he has since passed away, and that actually occurred um, in the middle of the filming. I was able to show him about half of the, the movie prior to his death, and he was very happy with it. But how it started is actually really funny. Uh, this was what I would say way outside of my scope of knowledge or interest was the alien alleged alien abduction phenomenon, not to mention this alleged alien implant phenomenon. It just seemed just too wild for me to put my, my hands or my mind around, but he was pretty persistent. It was actually my partner in the citizen hearing, Ruben Langdon, who's the unsung hero of the citizen hearing. (laughs) And he said to me, look, you really, Roger really wants you to to document this surgery. It's really important to him. He thinks this is an important one. So I met with Dr. Lear and we became friends. I I found him very charming, good sense of humor. He's a a caring, kind person. Uh, 
And I decided that I would just kind of on a whim because Ruben asked me, go and document this surgery. In so doing, it was the patient that really transformed my opinion. Meeting patient 17, this is an average guy of, of beyond average height. He's six foot nine. He's a megalith Whoa. of a man. Yeah. He's a, he's, he's a, I had to change my camera angles just to capture this full length of this man. But he was so down to earth. And the best part of my movie, I think, is that he was and remains the biggest skeptic that this object removed from his leg, which is hands down extraordinary, that it has anything to do with his abductive experiences, which he does believe he had. In fact, he's sure of it. And, and I don't doubt him for a minute. He has had abductive experiences his whole life, but he was not convinced that this object had anything to do with his abductive experiences. He was kind of roped in and pulled in for this rodeo. And I kind of felt bad for him. All these people jamming cameras in his face, people collecting in the waiting room. We actually, I actually helped sneak him out the back so he didn't have to interact with people. He's not looking for attention. So it was him, patient 17, that really convinced me this is a human story and it's worth telling. And that's before I knew what was isotopically and elementally found in his leg. And then, of course, Dr. Lear passed away and everybody stopped doing the science. It wasn't moving anywhere. And so that's when I was able to, and it, I fought tooth and nail to get a hold of this sample momentarily to do the first run of tests. And I was able to do that. I paid for it. I got it done. I felt a responsibility to patient 17 who was kind of upset. He thought he'd have answers the day after the surgery. Mm. And that's just not how it works. Yeah. And so that's what kept me on the story, how it started and what kept me on the story. And the, the story became about patient 17 and this whole experience more than, than just Dr. Lear. But that was unanticipated. That's because of Dr. Lear's death. Mm hmm. Patient 17 is a pseudonym, right? That's not, uh, well, obviously, yeah. it's not his real name because he didn't want his real name to be known. Right. Yeah. He was the 17th uh, alleged implant removal surgery done and performed by Dr. Roger Lear in his lifetime. And the final uh, alleged implant removal surgery <laughs> performed by Dr. Lear. And yeah, uh, patient 17 is how I refer to him because, yeah, he just doesn't want his name out in the world. He has a good job. He has a great wife and a great life. And he's a little trepidatious about people thinking he's a freak or it, he said it's hard to talk about. It's hard to talk about just his abductive experiences typically with anybody, especially his religious friends. He's very religious. He's a Christian. And he has this quote in the movie, you know, if this is real, you know, God doesn't go around implanting humans. So he doesn't know what to think. And I said, would that shake your faith if this ends up being something extraordinary? And he says, yeah. It would. So it's very personal. The movie is extremely cinematic, and it's extremely personal. Mm -hmm. Well, your style is very personal. In fact, your style, which which I love, and I've, I've shared that before, um, is is very different because it, it gets very personal. You don't necessarily hone in and and like a laser on the the exact topic but instead you explore 
um, the people uh, as people and and you show more about their lives. For instance, in that short um, Patient 17 that we shot at the UFO Congress, I learned more about Roger Lear, uh, Dr. Roger Lear, than I had, even though I had known him for years. Um, it, it's very intimate. Um, I guess talk about your style. Yeah, well, it's my fundamental philosophy that behind all extraordinary experiences or claims are ordinary people. And so being able to look at an impression or an extraordinary idea, we first need to look at the human being and how they came, intelligent human beings, and how they came to those extraordinary ideas. This was the case with John Lear and and the ongoing series that I'm working on with him. This was the case with Dr. Edgar Mitchell. And in fact, this is and was the case with Bob Lazar and the filmings that I've done with him. So these extraordinary claims and extraordinary just experiences that people talk about, you must understand how they came to these conclusions. And that is as telling and as interesting as anything out of this world. Mm-hmm. Like one of the things Lear is very passionate about, and you can tell, and a really moving scene uh, is when he's working with uh, or playing the organ. Um, you know, maybe share a little bit about that if you could. Sure. So, first of all, it's hard for people to really grasp this part, but I don't have a team of people. I work alone. So I film, edit, direct, sound engineer, audio engineer, colorize every piece, every frame of footage that you see coming from me. So I've filmed a lot and then I've edited and put out what I can as a single human working on these projects. (laughs) Now, going into Dr. Roger Lear, I like to use visual and metaphor to help the audience go on the same journey of discovery that I went on in going through this. So to understand Dr. Lear, I said, well, what is your passion outside of your surgeries and the the, the medical things we know about you? He says, well, I've always loved the Wurlitzer organ. And in fact, there's only a few in the world where the buildings were built around these machines and inside the corridors of these buildings are the mechanical mechanisms that actually make the sound. And he's like, there's one in Santa Barbara. I go up there once in a while about once a month, would you like to join me? I said, oh, hell yeah, I want to join you. So again, I went with my mom and we went up there, my mom and my dad actually. uh, And we went up there and had lunch with Dr. Lear, Dr. Roger Lear. And he showed me and I actually recorded a bunch of his music. So I actually have a few hours of him just playing the Wurlitzer organ. And it's this impressive machine that ended up being this kind of Wizard of Oz metaphor (laughs) for opening the door into the extraordinary. But seeing him play that, and he, he even plays, there's this little snippet at the very, very end of my movie, if you wait past the black, and he plays the tones that come from the movie Close Encounters. So I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> that is cool. And there's something about organs. That's what's kind of neat about it. It it, it gives this feeling of supernatural uh, to people. For some reason, maybe it's because of movies, we kind of have that that um, idea around organs, it seems. These giant ones, at least. Yeah, and he has this great quote in the movie, and I don't remember it verbatim, but it was something like, you know, that this is such a 
you know, such a razor's edge kind of situation here with what he's doing. If you're missing a note, you might miss the whole thing. And I thought that was a great metaphor that, that he gave me. Mm-hmm. That was a really good one. And that's what's good. I mean, had you had more filming planned with him before he passed? I would have loved because to continue filming with him because he would never have dropped the ball when it mm. came to the scientific analysis of this object. He was enthralled by this opportunity to show this on film. He wanted to know the truth. So the the sad part for me, other than the loss of, of a friend, was that we, we had the loss of the engine, the person that was going to see this through. And that was this moment you see in the film i am completely lost i am the least qualified person on this planet to be trying to find reputable labs or i was at that time the least qualified person now actually i have a great resource of my own personal invisible college you know people around me who will donate resources from nasa ames to nist to other independent individuals who can get me the best analysis on anomalous materials or suspected anomalous materials. But at the time I was floundering in the water, I had no idea. So I had to ask a couple scientists I know, who can I bring this to? What are the best, most credible labs I can blindly send this to and just have data? And so that's how I found Northern Analytics. And that's how I got the first set of results. And hopefully there will be more, but the custodianship of these parts, especially the only one I care about is patient 17's uh, object that was removed from him, the foreign body. That is, is, is what I'm fighting for now is to get custodianship of that with patient 17 so we can continue this analysis. But Dr. Lear would have been on it. He would have continued this. So that's what I'm trying to do with this one sample. All right. Well, this is a perfect time to take a short break. We're going to be right back. If you're listening on KGRA, you'll hear some commercials. So check out some of these people because they're the ones who help KGRA keep rolling. And for those of you listening to the podcast, you'll hear a few seconds of music. And we'll be right back with Jeremy Corbell. Welcome back. You're listening to Open Mind UFO Radio, and today I am speaking with Jeremy Corbell, who always has these really interesting projects going on, and it's part of the way you release them, but I, I think it, it, it's the way you like it, and I think it's fun, too, is there's there's often mystery around your releases. Like, people aren't completely sure where you're headed and so that it, but it causes this anticipation and kind of trepidation until boom they get the information and they're like holy cow yeah i think that's the nature of being a fully independent doctor documentary filmmaker 
I don't know where the road is going to turn. And also, I don't know which story is most relevant at what time. And so this is kind of the dance I have to do. I can cut trailers and pieces and show people what's cooking, but then I have to dive in deep and I don't tell anybody what's going to happen till I have a finished product because I believe in build it and then show it. Don't just talk about it. So the releases, the trailers, they show you what I'm working on, but there will be a succession of sonic booms. That I can promise you. This is my first one with Patient 17 dropping on iTunes on October 10th, 2017, which should be today with your podcast. You can go there and rent it. Yep. So – with Patient 17, we saw that preview, you know, at, at the UFO Congress a couple of years ago. And I think that you – did you have it online at all or was that – were those the only people who got to, to see a bit? Yeah, I did have a version of it online for a very short amount of time. I think it was something like 28 sales through Vimeo. That's how I was distributing my work. It wasn't one that I was really pushing forward on. I've then since taken it and I have really massaged it into something I'm very proud of. If there's anything wrong with the film, there's only one person to blame. It's me because I've done every frame of that film. So now at this point, I've got a finished product, feature length film that I'm very, very happy to say that I'm proud of. I think it tells the story. It shows the individuals. There are twists. There are turns. And there are some incredible moments that I did not anticipate, such as the physical analysis, the broad spectrum elemental analysis, and the isotopic analysis of two of the elements within this sample, which there are 36 elements in Mm -hmm. this tiny little object. And I'm assuming, I mean, they'll they'll get the details when they see the documentary, but uh, the results were anomalous. Yeah, I mean, I can straight up tell you it's not going to ruin the movie. It's It'll just tease the movie. But I was fully expecting, and so was Patient 17, that when we did the analysis, we would find the piece of a nail or something like that. We thought the mystery would be solved, case closed. It would be more about Dr. Lear, the movie, and more about his journey to try to prove this type of thing. But to our utter surprise, when these results came back, Zinc 64, if the results are correct, is definitively non-terrestrial. It is so far non-terrestrial, we're talking outside of the Milky Way galaxy. Now, the question here remains and will remain until I can do more tests. Do we have contamination? Am I just this this lucky UFO hunter who just had this blind analysis done in an object and it comes back non-terrestrial? Because the basics are this. On Earth, when you have an element such as zinc, if you cut a mountaintop or you cut into the ground, you pull out zinc. There's going to be five different isotopes of zinc. There's four that you can really – the big four you can really test for. There are ratios, abundances within those isotopes of zinc, which are terrestrial. That's how we know a rock is, for example, from the moon, because the elements that are forged on the moon have slightly different ratios than here on Earth. So we have a standard. Everybody can look it up. And you can look it up on Wikipedia. If you're 1% outside the standard of the terrestrial norm, then you have an extraterrestrial isotope. So that that element and those isotopes are not from here. And we get them all the time. There are people that study this, that study extraterrestrial isotopes. I actually found in my research, because I was unqualified at the beginning, the one zinc 
isotope, zinc-64 isotope specialist on this planet who wrote, who, who wrote his dissertation on zinc, extraterrestrial zinc. And he, he ended up being a doctor in middle America. And I called him up. He was like, what is this call about? How did you find me? How did you read my paper? <laughs> so <clears throat> essentially, the way he looked at it, he got right into what I was looking at saying, is this extraterrestrial? He told me the lab results have to be wrong. You know, somebody's pulling one over on you. So I called the lab and I said, did you guys triple cleanse the zinc 64? So for example, the uh, copper or nickel 64, I don't remember, wouldn't contaminate the sample. And he looks right through the records and says, yeah, we, of course we triple washed it, but I can prove it. And they're right here. Yes, your results are your results. And I said, take a look at him. And he looks at him. And then there's this pause on the phone. And he goes, look, I, I don't know what you have. That's not my job. My job is to do the analysis. That, that, that was it. So he's, the, the, the nationally accredited lab stands by their results wholeheartedly. And just to be specific with the actual results, there are 36 different elements in this sample. And I, I guess the, the simple way to say it is that if you look at the kind of standard deviation that you have to account for when you're looking at percentages of ratios of isotopes, right? With, with the standard deviation being 1.25%, which is pretty huge, actually, because remember, 1% means non-terrestrial. We are 2.5% beyond the terrestrial ratio if they're correct. If they're, if they're high, if they're high with their standard deviation, then it's 1.25%. That's still way outside the terrestrial norm. And if they're low on the standard deviation, we're at 3.75% outside the terrestrial norm. So with this test, if I haven't lost the listeners at this point, mm -hmm. with this test, we have shown non-terrestriality. Now, it is one test. I, I just spoke with Jacques Vallée about this. He came to my ranch. We were able to talk about the results because he's studying 15 different samples that he has collected over the years from alleged crashes Okay, that, that also have spectacular uh, results to them scientifically. We, he and I were both astounded by this result. And the deal is I need to get the sample back in order to do two more tests to eliminate the idea of cross-contamination, although we're, the lab is sure that there's not. And the sample you no longer have in your possession? I never was able to really have the sample in my possession for a prolonged period. Mm. I had five scientists set up in New Mexico. I called Steve Colburn. He was the guy that had the sample. And I said, I have people that will do atomic milling, which is like one of the greatest techniques to be able to mill through the outer layers on the atomic level and really see what this thing was. And I stood there waiting for that FedEx that never came with a whole team of scientists. So finally, finally, after badgering and badgering, Patient 17 and I, he's a big guy, remember, we were able to send off a piece of the sample to Northern Analytic and get our first set of data. Now, there is, it is a destructive test, destructive test, but there mm -hmm. is enough sample left. There is enough sample left to do more tests. So that's our next fight. As this movie comes out, I hope it puts pressure on the situation and we're able to get the sample back from Steve because the way I feel about it, it was taken out of patient 17's leg. It's his sample. Mm -hmm. Yeah, agreed. Now, um, I'm assuming that you're going to have some experts in the documentary to speak to some of this. And if so, I guess 
Um, what are the, the credentials of some of these guys? Well, what's funny is my approach to this film was to really take people who were – this is their wheelhouse, who you know have an investment in this. They want to believe. And why I did that was because the most of the experts that I brought this information to, they wouldn't go on camera. So for example, I talked with – a uh, nanophysicist who deals with elements and isotopes at NASA Ames. He was unwilling to go on record, but did say that more tests definitely needed to be done. I went to the head meteorite specialist at UCLA. He runs the Meteorite Museum. And again, he wouldn't go on camera, but he was interested in the results. But his reaction was kind of, they can't be right. There's no way they could be right because mm. they're extraterrestrial. Wow. So I have a, a very controversial figure and, and person that's been in a number of my films who, who I dearly admire who's Nanoman because he works on so, – a guy I call Nanoman. His name is Chris Cooper. He deals all the time, every day with nanotechnology. He's built some incredible – uh, propulsion devices that were being studied by naval intelligence. This is all verified and verifiable and will be coming out in the films that I've made. He does things all the time. They're on bleeding edge. So I kind of just brought these to him and said, you tell me, what do you think as you know a scientist? And it was fascinating. Of course, he has an understanding that extraterrestrials exist. That's part of why he, he does what he does. He's been inspired by his own experiences. But I was even able to ask Bob Lazar about this, who everybody says he's not a scientist or he's a janitor at Los Al all these stupid things people say. And, and by the way, I'm going to be clarifying that. I might as well say it. That's going to be clarified to a degree that people have not seen yet. I have been and am working on something on Bob Lazar that is going to be the definitive documentary on his story and life. And that will be my next films. And you can bet on that one because I'm already cutting it. <laughs> but, uh, but he, I just want to say, come back to what I was saying. Bob was actually extremely helpful at looking at the isotopes and elements because he is the most skeptical scientist I have ever met because he has to be because he knows what's real. So most of this stuff to him, he's like, that's BS. So it was cool to get his opinion on this. And again, everybody comes to the same conclusion. We need more tests. One last expert I was able to interview and, and, and look through but not get him on camera because it was at a bar that I met him. I was looking through the analysis at UCLA. They have a bar there on, on campus. And turns out this guy was a nanotoxicologist. So I said, hey, will you look at this and, and tell me something? This was in a guy's body. In the realm that you work in, would you want this out? And he's going through the, the data and he goes, this was in a guy's body? For how long? And I said, 10 years we know of. And he was just flabbergasted. I, he, he was like, yes, it was good you cut this out no matter what it was. It's got toxic elements in it. You do not want this sitting in your body. So there were a lot of scientists that looked at it from traditional scientific realms and they were unwilling to go on camera. There will be hot debate about the science of this. I was, I was able to talk to Frank Kimball. Actually, I think you, Alejandro, hooked me up with Frank Kimball to look at it. Mm -hmm. you know, and he thought it was pretty prosaic. He didn't see anything real extraordinary 
in it and told me his reasons why, but those are absolutely conflicting with other scientists. So I expect a big debate to go on about these results, and I will, upon launch of the movie, just let the data flow. I'll just put it out there and let people mark their opinions. But no matter what, we need to do more tests. So that's my aim after the release of, of my movie, which is now. Mm-hmm. And that's always because, of course, Kimbler's been here before, uh, need to do more tests. And the hard part is having the material. So that's what's difficult. Even now, I hope that you are able to obtain that material to do further testing. I've got a puncher's chance, man, because Good. I know who has it. I know where it is. And I got a six foot nine friend <laughs> willing to go get it with me. Well, that's cool, too. And you say friend. And because... Like you just mentioned it. I, I couldn't mention it before, but the Bob Lazar piece. Um, what's exciting, and, and I didn't get all excited because you had told me previously you are doing this, but what's great about your pieces is that you do get so intimate. And it seems like you even kind of, uh, for the most part, I've only seen maybe one character, and it's in this, if I can say, that maybe you weren't enamored with, but you get enamored with your subjects and you can feel that in the film. But what's great about that is it gives uh, the viewer a more, uh, a better look at who this person is. And I feel you walk away from your films really having a better understanding inside the psyche of these people. You got to know the ordinary person to understand their extraordinary conclusions. And that is my one primary aim of my film. There's two. The first and utmost primary aim of any of my documentary films is to uplift the visual aesthetic. After doing that, I try to really zone in on the human story so you get to know these ordinary people with extraordinary claims. And just for the record, I do not ever point my camera at somebody who I don't believe or I don't believe they believe what they're saying. So charlatans, crooks, thieves, and liars. I don't point my camera at them. And also, I have a no douchebag policy. So if I don't like you, I'm definitely not telling your story. Oh, really? What if, though, <laughs> to use your term, you run across a douchebag who's just kind of someone who's kind of on the periphery, someone who's adding information, uh, let's say. I mean, it seems like, like for instance, the person I think is is a bit of a DB, um, personally, that, that has appeared, and you probably know who it is, we've talked a bit about it, but... But we don't I, need to name names of people we don't talk about. But yeah, I cut them out. Basically, I don't ever film them again, period. That's it. There's tons of other filmmakers, tons of other journalists. But usually what I find, I, I have thick skin. People, when, when I say I have a no douchebag policy, people basically, it, it's not if they, if they're kind of scratchy, you know, or if they're just kind of bad tempered. I can deal with that. I get along with just about anybody. It, it, it's if they lie, mislead, exaggerate, or try to take the public's pure curiosity for understanding and twist it. We have a situation like that right now with uh, Stephen Greer. We have that mm. with the Corey Goods and the David Wilcox. We have those people who are absolute fraud charlatans running around saying absolute clarified lies. And getting away with it and, and, and spreading misinformation and disinformation for personal glory. And they are using 
the pure interest of good people, people who just want to know more because they've had profound experiences engaging with the phenomenon, and they're being sold the Kool-Aid to drink. And it is just deplorable, and that is something we have to fight against. Noise is the new black, man. And there is a bigger game being played with disinformation and distortion right now. And nobody is free from that type of influence. Nobody. And it's just one of the many veils that seem to kind of fall upon this topic. It's a deep thing, disinformation. It's a real thing. You see that with the reemergence of Richard Doty as the star witness in Greer's last film, which is ridiculous. I mean, I sat there with Jacques Vallée. Mm-hmm. He's seeing it for the first time, that little clip. He turns to me and says, there is no way that that's Richard Doty as a star witness in a film today. And I said, Jacques, I told you, it is worse than you thought. <laughs> so, so this is the problem that we run into right now, mm-hmm. and we need to be prepared for. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, that's our policy at the conference is that uh, – uh, we don't knowingly put anybody on who is a charlatan. Of course, there are times – I don't know if we've ran across it where they've we've found out otherwise afterwards. We did run across it a bit with someone not claiming their correct credentials at the last conference. But It's going to um, happen. We're in, we're in the yeah. world of UFOs and extraterrestrials. I mean this is a world that, that charlatans gravitate towards and we every individual needs to use their huge bullshit meter that they're born with and make sure that they vet for themselves, question everything, mm-hmm. everything. I- and yeah, and look, we learned this from Jacques Vallée. We we mm-hmm. learned this from from him, you know, back in the day. Origin reinforcement and manipulation. You know, origin being we don't know where these things come from. Everybody claims to know. We don't really know. Mm-hmm. The, all the only one singular thing we know for a fact that has been proven scientifically about UFOs is that they represent a huge amount, an extraordinary amount of energy in a really small amount of space. That is literally the only one thing that we know about UFOs. And and then, of course, from Jacques, we also know about reinforcement. He talked about the control system. We know that the appearances and manipulation of these visitations, that there is a pattern of reinforcement that appear to be one of education. So we know that. And then we also know that manipulation, that UFO disinformation is real and that that is a threat to our true understanding of the phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Now, finally, we've only got a little more than a minute left, but patient 17, like in the piece, you got to know him, too. And he's he's more of a difficult person to get to know. He's kind of like, you know, uh, seems like he's got a he's a very strong uh, willed person who is kind of uh, lays it out. But what's interesting, he's not your typical uh, abductee or someone who believes they've had these experiences. And that's what's interesting about him is, uh, I guess, what convinced him or what were his experiences that made him feel uh, he was going through this? Well, he is very clear that his abductive experiences are real. He has had very tangible from childhood experiences where he would be found naked outside his house as a child mm-hmm. where he could not even reach the the you know the, the lock on his door from the inside with his family so there's 
all these experiences that he's had that he knew were real. So when, when it was suggested to him that this thing in his leg might be related to that, he went along with it. Now his eyes got as big as flying saucers when he saw the Gauss meter response, which is basically if you run it over a, a battery, it will you know, emit. But again, Dr. Roger Lear, for how much I love him, he was using a stud finder on the man. I, I mean, I found that like <laughs> hilarious. And he was misusing a stud finder. I've done construction. So there are some humorous moments in the film for as much as I love Dr. Lear. There are humorous moments as you go into it. But Patient 17, that's what sold me on making this movie. The movie is about him, about his journey. And he is something to behold. He is a really fascinating, fascinating character and individual. So, you know, watch the movie. It's my first big one. I'm very excited, everybody. I mean, check it out. It, I'm proud of this movie. You're going to enjoy it. And there's going to be, you know, I like to say small incision, big mystery. There's going to be <laughs> a lot of questions after the film. And I, I do seek to answer them if I can. I'm really excited about it. I think he came across as very, very credible in the short. The The pieces with, with Dr. Lear were great in the short. So I'm excited to see more. So I'm very I'm excited for every single one of your films. Uh, um, so I'm very excited about this one. And, of course, as usual, people can go to ExtraordinaryBeliefs.com to get all of your stuff, including your EBE award-winning Cosmic Whistleblower. So your short with uh, Bob Lazar. That's right. That's right. That was so cool, man. The the EBE. That that I think I've got two from you guys now. So both are short films. One day I hope to to get a feature uh, with you guys because um, you really push the envelope with uh, open minds. You really let people know what's going on, and you guys are fair and you are balanced. And when you tell stories, I'm always reading them. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And. Uh, I think that uh, there's going to be a great response. I'm so excited for not just for people to see it, but the response. It's always good, too, because the people out there who are actually doing real work keep everything rolling. You know, a lot of people will say there's nothing new going on, um, but you're one of the people out there creating stuff and making stuff happen. So thank you for doing that. And thanks for being on the show again. No problem. And just last word, just want to say what's cool about this movie is you can watch it with your family, people that know nothing about the UFO topic. That's what I tried to do is make this film accessible. So that was the goal. Anybody can watch it. It doesn't you just don't need to be into UFOs to watch this film. Awesome. That's always a good angle to take. All right. Well, thanks, man. Thank you very much. Well, I lost track of time a little bit there, so we've gone a little over. I've got literally one minute. But you can check out Jeremy's stuff at ExtraordinaryBeliefs.com. Really cool stuff. I also usually share it on Facebook and my Twitter as well, so you can follow me and keep up to speed on what Jeremy's up to. So we're lucky to have some uh, news there. So this, this Bob Lazar thing looks really cool. Speaking of news, I did hear from Tom DeLong and today... Something should be launched, or very soon we should hear some more from him. And from what he tells me, it should be pretty extraordinary, speaking of extraordinary beliefs, so we'll see. But thank you to Martin Willis of Podcast UFOs for the news. Remember, you can find that news at openminds.tv. Also, we have new speakers listed at ufocongress.com and new videos at the UFO Congress portal and a free trial, so you can watch those for free. Remember, you can find all that at ufocongress.com. Thank Thank you all for listening. Until next time, adios muchachos.